Welcome to the People of Chattanooga podcast. I'm your host, Luke Swab. Today in the studio, I have Jason Bowers. I'm sure many of you people know him. He's a local restauranteur here in Chattanooga. Uh, we get into how he started the restaurants, his uh, education growing up, living in Central America for five years, and uh, much more. So without further ado, I bring you Jason Bowers. And we're live. Let's do this. All right. So, Jason, what do you do here in Chattanooga? I am the owner of The Bitter Alibi and The Daily Ration and The Fix Lounge, which is a cocktail bar part of The Bitter Alibi. Um, they're restaurants and bars here in Chattanooga. Wow, you have three. What what one was the first one? We opened uh, The Bitter Alibi uh, six years ago. Six years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then Daily Ration is four years old next month. Okay. So, well, congratulations. I know yeah. the restaurant business is really hard. So even getting past that first year is difficult, let alone starting a second and then even a third. Um, yeah. Can, <laughs> can you tell me the story how you started the Bitter Alibi? Sure. So we, um, I actually had a business partner um, when we first started. And so him and I worked um, a lot, a long time. Um, so we met, I'll just kind of start at the beginning. We met and... Um, kind of both had an entrepreneurial spirit and decided um, one night that there was an old bar that where Bitter Alibi is now that used to be there a few years before, but it had closed down and nothing had really done anything in that spot. What, what was the name of that bar? It was called O'Heine's. O'Heine's. Um, okay. It was, uh, there was a, there was like a coffee shop upstairs and then the husband, um, who owned the building wanted just like a little bar for him and his buddies to hang out. And so he opened a little bar and it was, it was a cool little spot. So, but it was really hidden. And so there rarely was anybody in there. So, uh, that was a lot of fun just to kind of hang out there. So when that came available, I was actually a teacher. I, um, I taught ESL in Hamilton County for, um, two years. And so is that English as a second language. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And so I taught that for two years and, was kind of feeling like I wanted to get out. I have a, I've worked in restaurants for worked in Chattanooga restaurants since I was 19. And then I worked in kitchens in high school. So I kind of knew I knew that business better than I knew education, even though I took a lot of college courses for it. It still felt like I was always on the outside a little bit. So, um, so then you were looking to make that transition from right. a teacher to a restauranteur. Right. And it was like April um, of 2014. And so the school year was coming to a close. I was like ready to, I was going to go on summer break and they were going to actually pay me through summer um, to be a teacher. Which, so, is, which so, is nice. Yeah. I mean, isn't that one of the reasons why people become yes. teachers? Because yes. yeah. Uh, yeah, you get the summer <laughs> off with a check. Exactly. And so I was like, well, this is a perfect opportunity for me to... Um, kind of have a steady income and try to get this thing, get the restaurant off the uh, ground. And so we started just in the basement. Um, for people who don't know what the Bitter Alibi is, it's a three-story building. And so the basement was where we started. We just rented the basement um, pretty cheap. And he, the landlord threw in all the stuff that was in there. Yeah. So like we didn't have to buy. I think we spent like nine or $10,000 just to open the thing. Um, so it was really cheap to just 
even get off the ground. Yeah, and, um, I, and I don't know the restaurant business, so what would be more typical? Nine or 10,000 sounds pretty cheap. What's more typical startup for a... I mean, I always tell people if you're starting with like a shell and you need like, if you're going to build a kitchen table, it's like 65, 70,000 is like, that's starting costs. And then hopefully get you through like six weeks of like, you know, decent sale. I mean, that's really cheap. That's like still bootstrapping. Um, Most people are probably doing like quarter million dollars to just open up anything. Yeah. And and they borrow money and all that. So um, I've never been one to take out big loans on stuff. I was, I always like just kind of bootstrapping stuff. And so, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just like saved some money, went into it and said, all right, let's just, your meager, your meager teacher budget yeah. allowed you to <laughs> exactly. start the restaurant. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, I, yeah, we did that for about six months down in the basement and realized that we were running out of room, um, just because it's such a small space. And so we're like, well, if we don't, rent the rest of the building somebody else is going to come in upstairs and just do whatever they want you know we didn't really want like a i think like a vape shop was looking to come in and mm. like a boutique and a lawyer's office and we're just like we you know if we have this opportunity to make this kind of a two-story thing or three-story thing let's go for it so and, and this was 2014 yeah yeah 2014 was when we opened and then it was early 2015 when we started building out so that area did still have little vacancies in in the buildings um but growth was starting to happen in that spot. yeah 2015 not as much it was more 2016 when like hutton and smith brewing company uh-huh. um an odd story i think that once hutton and smith came in and they were kind of eager to like open a brewery and and be another meeting spot um and then brian hennon opened up coin op which is a little barcade around the corner and that kind of, I felt, gave a little bit of, like, cool Chattanooga life, you know. It just made that area much more than just us and, like, JJ's Bohemia, this, a music venue, so. And that's interesting, because you would think um, another bar coming in would be competition, but in this case, it actually was helpful. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm, and we're good friends with pretty much everybody who <laughs> owns any type of bar on that street. Yeah. Um, because... Our employees support them. We sell their product. You know, they tell people where to get our food. It's, it's a very much, um, just family kind of feel to the street, especially um, because we all are there with a very similar mission, mm-hmm. um, and most of us are there working or working on it from somewhere else, but very active in the businesses versus a large investor that is in Utah, not really just throwing money or something. So, um, yeah, it's just it's like a definitely a family kind of thing. And anytime there's a new person, there's like kind of a welcoming, like, all right, like barley, um, which is a tap room opened up right next to us. And when those guys came to us and chatted with us, it was very much, Hey, what can we do to help? Do you need help putting in this hand sink? Do you need like, here's the people you need to talk to about getting a fire inspection, health inspection, all that stuff. So we try to help each other out with all the new stuff. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So you're in there um, for six months, starting to be crowded, running out a little bit of room. And then, uh, so you expanded up? Right. Yeah. We just opened up, we were just opening up for brunch upstairs. We kind of wanted to open a cafe. My old business partner had um, experience in cafes. And so we had old espresso machine and we had like pretty much had all the gear. And so it just made sense. Like, let's just do a little cafe. There wasn't much there. Um, 
Camp House wasn't there yet. And at that time, there was a big kind of coffee boom going on in Chattanooga. Mm-hmm. And so we just really liked that culture, too. Um, so we're like, let's just try to do something. And it quickly turned into more than that. It turned into more to a restaurant. Like Saturday, Sunday brunch, especially. This was 2015. There weren't a lot of restaurants doing brunch. It was still kind of a new thing in Chattanooga. Um, you go to Atlanta and you know, there's a thousand brunch places, but you can come to Chattanooga and there's like three. And yeah. so I was like, Oh yeah, we, we can push this. And so, um, we did that and it took off. And so we're like, we're, we, we're running out of space again and just keep moving up. So we, uh, yeah, it, it's, we built out a, a full functioning kitchen instead of just a little cafe. Um, so a lot of it was closing for three days and, just bringing the staff in and knocking out walls and, you know, I mean, pretty much learning how to do all this stuff just by watching YouTube videos and going to Lowe's. It was, it was pretty fun. So I don't really want to do it again, but it was fun. (laughs) Now. Um, okay. So now you're three stories tall, successful. Um, where do you come up with the name? So we had a, the guys who did our graphic design, um, tiny giant, they're here in town and they were, um, one of the guys, one of the web guys was like, I've always wanted to open a bar called the alibi. Um, um, just because I like the name. And so we're like, yeah, that's cool. I mean, that's kind of a, it, because we were just like a little basement and you had to enter through the back door and it was just, it felt very much, you know, I hate the word speakeasy, but it kind of felt that way of like, you know, off the path. Um, and so he was like, I'll let you guys use it. So I was like, all right, all right, we'll, we'll check it out. So I, I Googled, you know, the alibi, right? Alibi bar, alibi. And it was like 150,000, right? There's like so many bars and so, and there's like movies that have bars, na- that name. And I, I didn't even really, hadn't even really thought about it. And so we were just kind of like brainstorming a bunch of things and uh, bitter alibi sounded good. Uh, came off the tongue a little bit. And then we also did a lot of like IPAs and bitter beers and stuff when we first opened. And so that was kind of, we're just like, this kind of has a little double meaning and nobody really wants to be anyone's alibi anyway. So the idea of being a little bitter about it is always fun. So that's a pretty cool name. Yeah, I like thanks. that. Um, so then what happened after, were you pretty much established once you, um, well, I don't want to say established, but um, you went to the third story and then did you see that as like, okay, this is stable and then you wanted more and you started another one? Is that what happened or what was the timeline of what the next one was, Taylor Ashen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we probably jumped into the next one a little bit faster than we should have only because just knowing what I know now is like what stability really is with staff and um just how many little details can fall through the cracks if you're not there working all the time. Um, but having the space where the daily ration is came up and the guy who owned the business came to us and was like, do you want to purchase all this stuff and like take over the lease? Because mm-hmm. he was he was ready to be out. Him and his wife were just kind of tired of running it. And so... What was it called before? Uh, the Farmer's Daughter. Oh, that's what I thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So Mike and Ann um, mm-hmm. own that. And they're, and they're awesome people, but they were just like, we're kind of over it. And so we took that over. Um, and it was a pretty quick turnaround. I think it was probably four to six weeks from the time we had the conversation and the time we were open for business. So 
Um, some of it was a little bit rushed, but I think we really just wanted that space. We knew that that neighborhood, we saw the house in that neighborhood doubling in price, tripling in price. And we're like, this is like, this neighborhood's not going anywhere. So if we can, you know, just do a solid service to this neighborhood and embrace them and have them embrace us, you know, hopefully it'll work. So even though it felt a little rushed or the time was early, it still worked out. Mm -hmm. So that's, I mean, that's really all that matters. Yeah. There's some growing pains in all of that. And, you know, I look back at the first year there and, you know, everything from like menu dysfunction to like what's on the menu, how we're doing service, you know, everything. Um, And you're still, you still were going to have those problems where some of those, even if you waited longer to jump on it. So I'm right. right. I'm a big fan of, I mean, do what you can, but go for it instead of sit around and wait too long. Agreed. And I don't like paying rent or any monthly thing without any money coming in. And yeah. so that's why we've always been like, if we're going to start paying rent, like at Bitter, we opened July 3rd and rent was due July 5th. Like we hadn't paid any rent before oh. that. We pushed all the rent to the back of the lease. And the same way with this one is rent was due May 15th and we opened May 12th. It was like, we got a... We're going to have that first couple of days pay for rent and whatever basic utilities just to kind of say like, all right, we're not having any negative months. That was always, yeah. that's always the, the dream um, instead of sitting and paying rent for nine months while you do build out and all that. So can, can you tell us the opening day at Bitter? Yeah, I was, so it was July 3rd. It was a Thursday and we, um, it was just me, my business partner and one other guy that kind of helped because we had like panini presses in the basement. And so we just needed one guy to pumping out sandwiches that was it we had six sandwiches on the menu crock pots cooking the meat and then the like grilled cheese and veggie sandwiches on the panini press so um and then i had a friend who was the general manager of taco mamacita um and so she came over and helped opening night because we didn't have any other employees and so i was like well we just need like i know you're good so can you just like help out with this and we're just doing beer and sandwiches and it was one computer it was really easy so i was like this will be fun and we opened at four at it like four oh five. One of our buddies came in, you know, cracks sits down, cracks open a beer, and, and it was just like, okay, this is this is happening. Here we are, you know. And the whole night, you know, super full. Um, you know, I think we, I think we sold, I want to say like you know twelve hundred dollars in beer and sandwiches or something the first night, and we just were like ecstatic, like we cannot believe we just like pulled this off. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, at that point, were you starting to think um, about not um, being a teacher in the fall or were, were you already kind of committed? Did you sign? Yeah. I think in in the teacher world, don't you have to sign your contract in the spring for the next right. year? Yeah, I had told them I had told them um, already, like in May. So you were you were in. Yeah. During my like planning period, I was like writing the menu. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I was. I was pretty checked out the last month. Yeah. It was, and they were doing all those standardized testings and all that stuff. And so I was like, "This, they don't even need me. I'm just ESL anyway. So yeah. I just showed up and did what I could. But um, yeah, I was totally committed. I knew that, you know, I knew there was money in bartending alone. And so I was like, well, if I can just bartend six nights a week, yeah, you know, and run something and have zero payroll and all that, it's like, you know. I think I, we can make this happen. And so I was social media and stuff was just starting to kind of cross over into the business side of things. It was definitely like everyone had a personal Instagram, but there was no business Instagram and same with Facebook. It was only like the big companies had business Facebooks. And so we 
kind of got in on that um, and we were super active on all that social um, kind of before a lot of businesses in town had really jumped on it. So is that how everyone found out about it or was this word of mouth or? Yeah, I think it was, it was definitely a combo of both, but we really embraced the service industry in town because that's where we came from. And so we'd go around and like sit at people's bars, give them gift cards. Um, we had Christmas cards printed every year that we'd drop off at the bars and stuff like that. And so, um, again, that was just like something that in the 10 years prior working in the industry, I'd never seen anyone do. And so I knew there was like something special about here's a group of a couple guys that are all hustling and like, come check out my bar, come check out my bar versus a billboard on the interstate or a commercial or radio commercial or something. It was very much like, Oh, these are the people behind this business. Um, and I think more people have come in that more people in Chattanooga are more willing to kind of show their face now too, which is good. Now, where did this entrepreneurial spirit come from starting this business? Um, what, what happened? Was there anything in childhood that you were, you were hustling when you're eight or something like that? Yeah, I've always kind of, I think I made my first dollar. We, I actually grew up on a bird farm, which is ridiculous, but it was like exotic birds. And, that you sold to zoos or, or uh, people? or So, yeah, a lot of them were like collectors um, and then hunters. Like we had ringneck pheasant. And so we, I grew up in West Virginia. And so there was like sportsman clubs and stuff um, and quail. You'd sell quail. Where um, in West Virginia did you grow up? Uh, Beckley, like Southern. Okay. Like New River Gorge Bridge and yeah. rafting life. Um so I was kind of, yeah, it's like five hours away or so, kind of close to Virginia. Um, but yeah, so I grew up on a bird farm, and so we had a bunch of chickens, and my mom's like, all right, go like go door to door, a dollar a dozen, you know? I was like, a dollar a dozen? No one's going to pay a dollar a dozen for these eggs, you know? Because in the grocery store, I, they were under a dollar, and I was like, no one's going to over like overpay for these. Um, <laughs> like, I already knew that at like nine. I was like, no, no, no this isn't a good deal, but... My mom was like, no, 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 just go ask. And so I just did that. Um, anytime I was like, can I take a couple dozen to, you know, Gary who lives next door? And I'd knock on the door. So they would be, you know, calling the house to let us know when there's eggs. And so that kind of was like, oh, this there's a demand for this. All right. Um, and you have that kid factor. Yeah, totally. I, I, <laughs> totally. I, I did the same thing. I sold <laughs> eggs. I, I did a lot of stuff. But when that's what ki- hey, kids listening, mom, you have the kid factor in your favor. So try to yeah. hustle when you're young. Exactly. Yeah. They'll, people will pay a little bit more for that cute face. Yep. So, um, I did that. And then all through high school, I, um, would sell stuff at during lunch. Um, so I had some, a Mountain Dew flavor came out that our school didn't stock in the concession stand or the drink machines. And so I would bring those and then just sell them like in a cooler and I got shut down with that because the school's losing money on their side of things. And then I worked in a kitchen at a college that had, um, I would buy cases of cookie dough from them, like that was already turned in. And I would go bake those off in the kitchen and sell those in the lunchroom. So it's just like, yeah, I, was, I don't know if I, I don't think I had ADHD, but it was definitely like, I don't want to just sit down at lunch and hang out. I like, I always wanted to have like something to do. And so yeah, definitely felt like that's always kind of been in me of like, I gotta, there's an, if there's an opportunity to make a dollar, I'm going to 
figure out a way. And so did you come, was your family a little poor coming from West Virginia? No, I mean, not, not poor, but my dad, um, he was, got into landscaping and so he was a landscaper and started his own business with, had a couple guys and lawnmowers. My mom was pretty much the first in her family to like go into medicine. So she did, she was a physical therapist, but when I was a kid, my parents decided to move to Central America to be missionaries. So I have three brothers. And so when I was six, we moved to Costa Rica and Honduras. And so I lived there for five years and then came back to the States. So yeah. not not necessarily poor, but it was definitely like in West Virginia, there's just, you know, it felt like we were kind of probably middle class, um, middle class there, but it was definitely, I don't, I, I don't think I really even noticed the poverty as much because I had been in Honduras where I'd seen like really real poverty and not that West Virginia doesn't have poverty because it does, it has really bad poverty, but it was a different kind of feel, especially as a kid. It's just, you're just a kid, you know? And so, yeah. How did you like, did you like, um, living in Honduras and Costa Rica for oh. that time period? Oh yeah. 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 It was fun. I mean, especially as a kid, it's like the experiences and you know, I got a mango tree, banana trees, uh, paloma tree. And then again, my dad is a collector. So we had all exotic animals. So he would rescue animals from people who were selling them on the side of the road and rehab them at home. And so did, you, did you have a monkey? I did. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little capuchin white face monkey named Abu. Um, and then, uh, yeah, we had tons of random stuff, parrots and toucans and, ringtails and owls and it whatever my dad like he would go up into the villages and and would bring some food water and stuff and like kind of help um build like whatever kind of church community they had and then uh on his way back there would always be people on the side of the road with like holding up something holding up a cage or whatever um and a lot of it's like people just like stealing little birds from the nests and then just trying to sell them to make any type of money and so Looking back at it, I don't know if that's like helping or hurting the the uh, situation by giving money, but then these animals, a lot of them died like pretty quick um, afterwards because they just, yeah, they're not supposed to be taken from their parents or whatever. And so, but mo- but we saved a lot, like the monkey we saved and he was awesome. And Is it as awesome yeah. as you think it is? Every kid wants a pet monkey. Is it as awesome? It's so cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we it we it wore like a little diaper. We'd cut a hole so its tail could go through, and you know, it's. <laughs> I only got bit once uh, on the neck because it was we were trying to take it off my shoulder to put it back in its little pin at the end of the night, and it did not want to go, and it just, you know, latched on. And as a seven year old, it was pretty pretty scarring. I remember yeah. it very vividly. <laughs> yeah, you look monkey shy. <laughs> yeah, didn't break skin though, so I was all right. I was all right. <laughs> Wow, that's pretty cool. Um, when did you come back to the states? You said five years, right? Yeah, okay. I was. I think it was like five to ten. I came back in like fourth grade. Um, so going okay, five to ten. Came back in fourth grade. Um, so was that your first time in a public school when you were ten coming back? Yeah. So I had. We went to a bilingual school um, in Honduras. Uh-huh. Was and, it all um, foreigners? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Actually, no. no. We were the only ones. Only foreigners. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we were in a small town. Um, super cool. So all the kids were looking back at it now, now that I, what I know is most of those kids were like, 
you know, like a doctor's doctor's sure. kids or yeah. like small business owners' kids or, um, and so we were pro- we were with like the wealthier kid wealthier families, but you know, it was still <laughs> still sure. dirt soccer field and you know it wasn't like a posh place at all. It's Honduras. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and up we were up in the mountains too, away from like all of it. But so we our family was the only. Um, Americans there and then I think there was one other like Swedish family that showed up the last year we were there but um, yeah so we did English in the day and then Spanish in the afternoon yeah so it was wild and so then you get you come back to West Virginia I believe right okay and then you're going to a public school um private private school school. okay christian school what was it like um going from did, did you have any culture shock going from this is how we do things in Honduras this is my normal um, it's okay to, you know, there's a lot of differences between the two countries, a lot of norms, and you might have accidentally done things that are normal there, but not here in America. Mm-hmm. Um, what was that like, that getting used to the way we do things? Was it frustrating? Was it okay, exciting? I think I've always been a little bit of a chameleon with that stuff. Um, I can kind of figure out the situation and, and adapt pretty easily. My two older brothers, I think, coming back as like young teenage, like young teenagers and stuff, I think they they were kind of shocked as far as like just how much these kids already knew and like whether it was swear words or sex or anything like that. They're like, "Oh man, this these guys know a lot more than I do." Because we were definitely sheltered in this small school up in the mountains. Um, for me, it was you know it was just a different pace. It was like. I rode my bike to school every morning in Honduras and now I'm having to like hitch a ride with the teacher going to school or it just, it felt very much like, well, this is cool, but there's the, there was definitely not as much freedom uh, where in Honduras it was so small. It was very much like, all right, mom, I'll be back, you know, at dark and get on my bike and who knows where I really went? Uh, I'm not actually sure, but uh, just riding around with people and yeah, hanging out. So, uh, I, th- yeah, not too much. But do you think that experience um, made you gravitate or start doing ESL? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I, I, I've always, I've always like really been interested in um, Spanish culture since like coming back from there, and so. Um, just having that not having a little bit of that language knowledge i think i'm learning spanish at such a young age it, yeah it just yeah it just feels feels comfortable i think about things in spanish i'll like sometimes think of the word in spanish before english and i'm not even a fluent speaker anymore uh, i don't know if i ever was but i definitely i'm conversational but my oldest brother he's fluent and he's married to an ecuadorian woman so he's you know it's it, it's now it's really ingrained even more in our family with niece and nephew and all that so would would you dream in spanish i heard that's when you know you're fluent (laughs) if you dream in a different language yeah yeah i yeah i definitely have um when i was a kid for sure and then when i was teaching esl and anytime we had to do like parent teacher conferences and stuff i would be like some type of bad translator for the teacher and the parent and after doing that all day for like a week then you know I'd, I'd start dreaming in Spanish. Some of it wouldn't make any sense, but I, in my mind, I knew exactly what I was trying to say. So, <laughs> so then, so you did the private school thing and then did you go to college? I did. I went to school down here, um, Bryan college in Dayton, Tennessee. Oh, yeah. So, just right up the road. Mm-hmm. And so 
my oldest brother had gone there before, had a really good experience. And so I was kind of ready to get out of West Virginia. It just felt like I, my time there was like kind of coming to an end. I was like, I feel like I'm not super excited about any of the schools up here. I, you know, I could just hang around for a few more years. Um, and I missed out on some really fun stuff with my friends, like my high school friends. Like I go, I've gone back and chatted with them. I'm like, man, that I should have hung around here for a couple of years, but um, yeah, I've moved down here. Like, and, what kind of stuff do you miss out on? Do you feel like? Oh, nothing, nothing good. Just like, <laughs> yeah, like just house parties, and you know, I mean, yeah. I went to a small. I went. Brian's a small private school, and so yeah, which again, it was probably a good thing for me to actually like go to class and and um, finish in four years and all that. But uh, yeah, no, it's just it was fun. But yes, but I came down to Brian, and and then Chattanooga was very new to me. Um, I had only visited a few times. And so, yeah, it, it felt like a huge city compared to where I was from. And, uh, but it definitely felt like West Virginia was becoming less and less home. Um, just with my family had moved down here, um, slowly. And then ultimately all of us are, nobody lives there anymore. And so so your parents live here in Chattanooga. Yeah. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Or actually, you know, weird. My parents are uh, divorced and remarried now, but my mom had moved down here and then um, she moved, her husband got a job somewhere else. And so my dad actually moved here because he lived down in Savannah, Georgia for a while. And so now he lives here. And so, mm-hmm. um, but my two older brothers live here and then my youngest brother lives in Knoxville. But, and and now you're realizing it's not as small, as big as that town <laughs> exactly. as you once thought. <laughs> exactly. I'm yeah. like, oh yeah. Especially the longer you're here, the more I'm like, you can't, Every place you go in, you're like, oh, yeah, I know that person. I've seen that person before, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually kind of love that about Chattanooga. That's It's something that when I go out of town, I enjoy. Yeah, I enjoy when I'm out of town because I know I'm not going to run into anybody. It's kind of nice, especially being in the restaurant business. I think there's, yeah, there's just weird kind of, if somebody knows you're in the restaurant business, then maybe you're treated a different way or I don't know. I think I just like going into a place and I don't judge place. Like I don't judge restaurants when I go in and I'm like looking at everything and be like, I can't believe this place is doing this. I don't really care about that. I'm just like, I enjoy just sitting down, eating, hanging out with my wife and <laughs> going and like just have, just being there and enjoying the experience. So, mm-hmm. um, now yeah. what is, what does your wife do? Uh, she's a women's health nurse practitioner. Okay. Yeah. So we've actually both met, uh, we, we both worked at Taco Mamacita here in town. Oh, nice. Um, and so we met there. We worked together for a couple of years, and then uh, I went to go teach, and she actually went back to school um, to get her master's. So Can you tell us the um, proposal story? Sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, <laughs> we, um, we'd been dating a long time. Uh, we'd been together for seven and a half years, eight years now. Um, and so... We dated a few years, and then I we went to Foster Falls, um, which is 45 minutes away. Classic with spot. Some, with some friends, and hiked down, swam a little bit. Um, and my plan that I hadn't really thought out well was her and I were going to go hike up to the top of the waterfall, and then my friends were going to be down there, and I had a, like a nice camera with a lens, and I was going to 
didn't work out that way, but uh, she like twisted her ankle. We'd gone on a jog that morning. And so she's like, why are you making me like, come, or yeah. She's like, why are you making me walk all the way up here again? Like, yeah, you went, you went down to swim and then you were hiked back up. I was like, they'll get our stuff. Don't worry about it. Let's just go up here. And she, yeah, didn't see it coming at all. But we went up to the top and I was like, she's not going to be able to get down to the top of this waterfall because her, I think it was her knee was, had messed up. And I was like, all right. So I just found an overlook. I was like, this is good enough. Let's just do it. So, mm-hmm. uh, proposed. And then my friends did not get the memo. And so they had already come, they were already hiking up and then they like walked in halfway through the proposal and I was like, Oh guys, get out of here. <laughs> they were awkward. Just like spinning in circles and walking into the shrubs. And so it was just ridiculous. But, um, we had already told a lot of her friends, a lot of her friends are from Atlanta, and so they had driven up, and mm-hmm. so we had a bunch of people waiting at Daily Ration for a big party, so. Super cool. Yeah, it was fun. It was so much fun. Um, so, speaking of fun, what else do you, what do, you do for fun besides uh, start restaurants? Um, that's a good question. What do I do for fun? I definitely like cooking and, like, just entertaining people um, at the house. That's probably one of my, like, go-tos, just getting, like, eight to ten people together and um, hanging out. Um, I do enjoy running. I run a lot. I enjoy mountain biking, spiking around. Um, I'm a pretty poor musician, so I play the guitar a lot. Um, I used to, I played in a lot of bands in high school and college. And so I play guitar and drums. And is, is there an album out somewhere? Did your I'm high not school vet been going to, <laughs> can you give us a link? <laughs> you know, I actually tried the link. Um, I tried the link a few months ago because one of the guys who was in the band is, uh, he's a Twitch streamer. So he does like games online and I like every time he's on there, I get notified. Sometimes I'll just go into his chat and mess with him, but I can't, I think it was down, but the band was called evening side. Um, evening side. It was pop punk, uh, from West Virginia. There, I think there is a video on uh, YouTube of maybe, I'm I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to find this. (laughs) Um, yeah, there's some there's some rough videos out there, which luckily this was before everyone had a camera, you know, so it was definitely someone's dad in the back filming on yeah. his on his video camera versus did, you know, all did your band people. did your band have a MySpace? Oh yeah. 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 I had a MySpace. That might be where some of the stuff is. Yeah. Oh yeah, I could oh yikes. <laughs> we could find that. We could find that. So you like to mountain bike, some trail yep. running. Yeah, play some music. Music. Um, I don't know. Do you travel? Yeah, I, I mean, that's, yeah, I love traveling. Yeah. I mean, that's, I got the bug early on. Um, well, yeah, when you're a kid, um, are there some more um, exotic places you've been? Yeah. Um, my brother lived in Vietnam for four years, and so I went and traveled i stayed there for two weeks one time and then i went back with him after he had left and we went to um vietnam thailand and myanmar um Mm. which was really cool so that's probably like the coolest places um kind of most exotic things i've done but yeah yeah that was a total that was like probably the most culture shock i've ever had was going to vietnam for the first time yeah i was like oh Every I can't understand anything or anybody or, you know, even in, like I had been to Latin America a lot in South America, Central America, and, you know, even like Puerto Rico, Jamaica, Dominican, like that's all, it all feels similar, right? Um, 
just culturally it's, it's very similar. But then when you go, yeah, I just remember like flying into Vietnam. I was like, especially like Ho Chi Minh is so big. We're like in a metropolis area, jet lagged, can't understand anything, looking at food menus and not knowing anything. I didn't even know Vietnamese food. So I didn't even know what pho was before I went. So I was like, oh, this is, <laughs> I don't even know how to, I don't even know what I'm getting. So yeah, um, that was pretty wild. But yeah, that's, that's probably my favorite place I've ever been was Vietnam. It yeah. Was so cool. Now, do you, um, do you, are you the head chef at these restaurants? Do you create the menus or how's that work? Yeah, I think most of the, like, the starting menus, kind of like the, this is the direction the menu is going. And it's always a collaboration with who's man- who's the manager because they're the ones who are going to have to cook it. So mm-hmm. they have to really enjoy it um, and believe in it or it just gets lost. When I'm not there, they don't really... You know, they're like, oh, this is Jason's dish, you know? Yeah, that uh, makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm always, anytime a new menu comes out, I really want whoever's managing the kitchen gets at least one or two items on the menu. Um, definitely gets a lot of say in it. I think there's, the longer I've done this, the more I've kind of, I had full control in the beginning, gave up some control to like people who are more culinary, like actually trained. Um, and then, but then when they leave, it's really hard to, keep kind of the standards of what that chef had yeah and your customers have come to expect that so if you get a different chef who has a different twist on it right yeah right so we've we've kind of figured out our niche i think we're we're in a good spot right now and um so i take credit for the direction of the food a lot Mm -hmm. of times but i don't take full you know i'm not a chef i'm i'm a home cook and um a pretty lousy restaurant cook, honestly, but it's, but I enjoy, I know good flavors. I know kind of style and food. And because of the travel that I've done, I see trends. I understand when I go to Atlanta or New York or even Nashville, I can kind of see like, Oh, this is the direction Mm -hmm. we're going. And it, Chattanooga is always just a year behind some towns and then probably like two years behind New York or maybe even more. And so, um, what's the next food trend? That's a good question. Um, are we still on avocados or is that dying? I think avocado toast may be, may be having its last hurrah. Yeah. Um, I think definitely the Asian food is not going anywhere for a minute. Um, I think you're going to see more, I think ramen had its big push and they, that was kind of like the, the world's introduction to tacos or something where it's like now everything can be a taco. Yeah. Um, which like, you know, food trucks had like Kogi Koji had what seven years ago or something. It was like, you can put Korean meat on a taco and it blew up. And so we're kind of there with the ramen and now it's like noodles and, um, Americans are eating more like rice bowls and kind of, uh, doing that. I think vegan options and kind of the, being creative with meat substitute kind of stuff like that. Um, fresh vegetables. I think that, I don't think that's going anywhere. I think people are going to, we're going to see a, a, a really big rise in veganism and vegetarianism, especially over the next few years. And people who menus that don't cater to the people are going to suffer for that. Um, I just, if you're a burger spot, that's fine. But like, having that substitute like black bean burger or something it's like yep 
you know, it's not that hard to do and you're going to retain a lot of customers. So yeah, we've I mean, always tried to be on the forefront of that too, just cause I don't eat a lot of meat in my diet. And so yeah, just like, that's kind of where I like going. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I have a lot of friends who eat veganism or whatever. Um, and it's just more helpful as a group when you're deciding right. where to go, you're always thinking of that one friend who's a little more picky. Right. So that's good that you have those options. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's, a um, we've definitely been embraced by, um, a lot of the like vegan communities. And yeah. that's something I hear more than almost any compliment like I get. It's like, oh, really? I was like, man, you guys have such good vegetarian options. Or it's like, cause people who are really looking for those yeah. when they find their spot that like, oh, I, there's like nine things on this menu I can eat, you know, versus like the veggie plate and the mac and cheese or whatever. It's like, yeah. And it's like, okay, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily want a salad, but I also don't want just like pasta. So, um, if you're a vegetarian, but yeah. What about the gluten-free thing? Um, we try to be like gluten sensitive with a lot of stuff. Um, you know, we use soy sauce and we use a couple of things that are, you know, I don't say are completely gluten-free, but gluten sensitive. Um, that's a hard one for me. I think because it's, like allergies and stuff like that are a little tricky. Like we have peanuts at Bitter Alibi because we do kind of Thai Asian stuff. And so like, I hate it for my friends who have peanut allergies. Cause they're like, I really shouldn't eat anything here, you know? And I'm like, yeah, I get that. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want you to eat it here if you're that sensitive to it. Um, and it's kind of the same with the gluten stuff. I'm okay with making some arrangements, but I can't, I can't promise anybody that, there's no gluten in the air in our, our kitchen. Like yeah. we bake biscuits for brunch. We have, you know, tons of flour for fried chicken and stuff like that. So yeah, I rather, I, we're not a gluten safe place and I don't, I think that some of that was a little bit of a trend. Um, but I think people realized that, yeah, maybe I was eating just way too much bread Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it messes up your stomach <laughs> Yeah, or I'm eating way too much milk and, oh, I am lactose intolerant. Like, okay. Yeah. Maybe lay off the ice cream. We get it. <laughs> um, what's it like to hire employees at a restaurant? Um, I actually really enjoy the interview process. I enjoy sitting down with people and kind of letting them kind of sell themselves to me because usually that meat that I can usually figure out how they're going to sell the menu, how they're going to like talk to customers, how com- comfortable they are like with a stranger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unfortunately the way the interview process, like I'm kind of in a, you know, power position because they're trying to get something from me. Uh, and so it's a little different, but it's pretty easy to tell if somebody's going to be a good fit. Um, I've definitely made some wrong calls, but most, most of the people that we bring on, um, you know, are pretty, pretty cool. So I enjoy it. It's not my, not my favorite thing to do. Um, just because a lot of people don't show up for interviews or then they get hired, they don't show up day one. And so it's definitely like kind of a pain, but, and and then on the converse, um, how hard did it, how hard is it to fire people or let people go? Yeah. Um, if it's somebody who has been there for a while and you've seen kind of them put time in and then kind of get to a point where like it's not working anymore, 
based on what a number of things. Um, that can be tricky. Like that's probably my least favorite is like when I really like them as a person, but I can't, um, like it wasn't like, Oh, you stole money. It's like, you're just not working out. You know, that that's the hardest thing. Um, but when they still want to be there, yeah, but it's just, or you can tell they didn't really don't want to be there, but they're just like, they don't necessarily want to make the call themselves and the money's good enough, you know? And so that's, that's really tricky because when you're trying to like, Hey man, you're my buddy. You've worked here like two years, but it's like, you haven't really done anything for the last six months. And so those are always hard conversations, but, and they're not my favorite. Um, yeah. And so. What's kind of the worst part of owning a restaurant? Um, I think there's definitely the unknowns uh, right now. Definitely. I'm feeling that, but like kind of just what, um, you have a pretty, I have a pretty good idea of like what sales are going to be and money's coming in and all that. But you know, there can be a number of things that can happen with, anything that going on in, in town or, you know, uh, if somebody gets sick eating your food and leaves a bad review or has allergic reaction or falls and hurts themselves, like there's all these, you can keep yourself up, up at night knowing that like, okay, a thousand people went through my restaurants today or this week and, and like, I hope nobody, there's no issue, you know, cause we do live in kind of a suing mentality yeah. you know, place. So it's, so there's definitely that worry. Um, you know, luckily I have insurance for that stuff, but, um, it is still just another kind of headache. And then just knowing like the unknowns of who's working for you and are they on your side? Or are they against you? Or are they skimming off the top? Or are they stealing? Or are they, does that happen sometimes skimming yeah. off the top? How, how prevalent is that? Um, I would say not, not, too bad where I'm at. I have audits that I do. And so I can kind of tell pretty quickly when somebody's kind of doing something. The hardest is like bartenders just like giving away beer. Um, you know, it's like we have a, we have a pretty open conversation about, um, giving away things and not ringing them in is stealing from me Mm -hmm. and from the company. Um, so we have we have a tab that if you gave away, if you give away a drink, ring it in on that tab, and then we'll cover it. Like we'll we'll pay for it because I would much rather that them just know that there is a system in place. That if you want to give your buddy a free beer, go for it. Um, or but not even your buddy, but like someone, like a regular or a, a person, a new, even someone who's new to town. You know, kind of use that free drink to draw them back in. Yeah. But it needs to be accounted for. Right. No like mystery. Right. You need to know where it came yeah, from. Yeah. We do inventory every week. And yeah. so it's like when we're counting up, it's like hmm, missing 12 beers guys. What's uh, you know, it's a pretty, they know they're like, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. And some of that's just like, Oh, I forgot to ring that in or we were really busy. And I just remember that I forgot to ring in that guy's second round. And so like, I understand there's a, a level of like, are they doing it maliciously? Are they doing it forgetfully? Um, so mm-hmm. I have patience for all that stuff. <laughs> um, so this is March 2020, coronavirus. How is that affecting you? Oh, my physical and mental health. Um, all of ours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's This has been definitely the hardest thing that I've had to deal with in business. Um, in all the years of the three 
the three restaurants. It's right here. Diff, I mean, this is the hardest thing I've ever had to deal with. We've got... In your life? Yeah. I mean, pretty close. Mm-hmm. It's pretty close. It's affecting so many people. Um, what are you? What are you doing? What's your... I just saw on your Instagram yesterday, you, you can't, you're, you have takeout food now. Right. So we've always had a, a decent like takeout thing. I think we're, you know, doing a couple hundred dollars a day and like some to go or delivery stuff. I mean, we're now we, we did a thousand dollars yesterday. You know, it's like, okay, so now it's, and a lot of that is us promoting more and it's the only way you can get food in Chattanooga right now is out the front door. And so pushing a lot of to go orders, um, but we had to skim we had to skim the staff down exponentially because of everything. Um, Does that mean some people just aren't working or you're giving everyone less hours? So I kind of did made mock schedules with what would it look like for me to keep everybody and give select hours. And after talking to some other restauranters in town, they suggested, and I've kind of, I kind of agree with them now that it's best to keep on some people and have separations from everybody else to let them collect unemployment. So that's what we did. We have, I, we had 52 people in the company and now we have nine people in the company. Oh, wow. So some of those are part-time people. Um, but so yesterday we sat down with everybody and had to give separation notices. So yeah, it's a lot. I mean, that's, that's a conversation that luckily everybody was pretty receptive because they're watching the news too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they realized that like, this isn't, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, they know it's not busy enough to have five servers, a bartender, a barista, <laughs> six kitchen people and a dishwasher when we're just doing to go boxes and coffee, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, it's wild. And those, those nine people, that are on staff right now. Um, how are you doing? Are, are they getting tips? Can we tip these people when we get our takeout food? How does that work? Cause as far as I understand, that's where a lot of their money comes from. Right. Yeah. So I'm definitely boosting hourly rates to everybody who's working. So everybody's, oh, everybody's making, you know, at least $10 an hour. Um, I think probably more than that actually, but, um, you can tip on any of your takeout orders we just are ordering over the phone and then you can add gratuity over the phone. That way we don't even want to like, we want to take out the bag receipts in there, foods in there, everything to go and we drop it on the table and then they pick it up. So, um, yeah, you can tip on that. You know, you can, we have a, um, Venmo on our Instagram and Facebook that you can tip and then just use a different hashtag of whether you want to tip the bitter kitchen, the, ration kitchen or a specific server. Um, cause just some of these bartenders have been with us for three or four years and they've got their crew of 20, 30 people that come in every Wednesday night for wine night. And you know, they, they're like, they know Whitney or Mary's going to take care of them that night. And so like, um, you can see the, the interaction we've even had on social media. People are like, man, I really, I'm like already missing it. <laughs> it's only been like three days, but they're like, my Friday night plans that I've had, I've gone to the same place every Friday night for the last like 82 weeks and now I can't be there. So, um, but yeah, you can tip them, um, on that. And even the people that aren't necessarily working for us are going, there's 
opportunities for them to still get tipped. So, yeah. So, so what are you going to do today after this, um, with the restaurants being not quite as full? Um, this week is all about planning and getting ready for what this weekend is going to be. Our weekends are always busy, always have tons of people and tons of people come in, but I just, I'm not sure if they're going to still get to go food. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. Last night we had a lot of to go food, but I just don't know what this weekend's going to be like. So a lot of it's social media pushing, um, letting people know that we are doing it for, um, daily ration. We're doing to go like family boxes, like biscuits, eggs, bacon, potatoes, or you can do, you know, toast, avocado, salad greens, and what it's like, we're, we're kind of have a bunch of family boxes that you can get, or you can just order on, on the regular menu. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm trying to, I need to figure out kind of how to do all that. So after this going over there, working on a game plan for this weekend and then going to better alibi and working on a game plan for over there. Cause this will be the first weekend you're not allowed to go and sit down for brunch. Right. And, and is brunch a big part of your yeah, success? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially daytime success at yeah. bitter alibi and then daily ration. Like it's, you know, 80% of our sales. So it's very substantial. Um, now granted labor is going to be, much lower because we only can have three, three people and me working, but, um, with no dining room and no dishes to wash really. It's like, yeah, I just, that's kind of where we're at right now. But will you be able to do mimosas to go? Any drinks to go? Or is that illegal? Um, it depends on who's listening, but yeah. <laughs> no, uh, legally we're not, um, I don't think we're supposed to do mimosas to go. Um, sure. I did read that, um, one state, passed a temporary law where you can do that yeah new york yeah yeah and i think that's great yeah it's ridiculous to not allow people to like for me to be able to sell a bottle of champagne to somebody yeah. or um it, especially if this if the government's going to say that we shouldn't like we're going to cut your sales in yeah, we're now you can only do twenty percent of sales, but we're still going to hold to all these other rules. Right. But we're not going to hold to this rule of. Yeah, it should you know. be a give and take. Yeah. If you're going to not let me serve people inside my restaurant, right? Then let at me, least let me serve them in their home. <laughs> yeah, let me sell them the stuff that they would buy in my restaurant. Right. You know, it. Yeah. Well, this and the truth is the the state is going to see a huge drop in tax collection mm -hmm. from liquor. I mean, liquor. If you buy liquor in Gen in Tennessee, it's twenty four percent tax, right? So if I if you buy a three dollar mimosa, it's three dollars plus twenty five percent, so it's like three seventy five, whatever. I don't know if that math is right, but yeah, um, but yeah, it's like that. So that's that's seventy five cents of every mimosa that they're not getting uh -huh. um, for however long. So they're gonna see that hit. I mean, to me, it's like I I made a joke about it um, on our Instagram, like come in and buy the chairs, buy the light fixtures, whatever you want right now. Like, you know, the truth is restaurants just need money coming in, whether that's gift, because we, we have gift card promos right now and um, tons of stuff like that, just so we can have some money coming in to be able to pay all these utilities and rent and all the stuff that is not going to slow down 
you know, that check, that stuff is still going to get drafted from the bank account. And, you know, my landlord's not going to be like, sorry about the pandemic, but <laughs> yeah, because he still has, he still has the bank, you know, they're still one there cut. And so we'll see, we'll see what kind of comes of all that. But both restaurants are in good places um, to like be able to kind of make it through this um, as long as it's not like six months long. But I think we can kind of make, you know, make it happen. Um, the sad part is just all the whole staff having yeah. to suffer um, because we, we do have such a like team kind of family mentality that it, it feels very much like you had to cut the arm to save, save the body type thing. And so, yeah, that's a little graphic, but you know what I mean? It's just, it, it, yeah, sometimes it's like the best call for, to keep the whole thing together. So, yeah. Yeah. You definitely have and had some hard decisions to make. Um, and anytime there's a hard decision to make, you're going to have people that understand it and people that don't understand it. So right. I empathize for you. Yeah. And I'm not the only one. I mean, there's, you know, millions of people right now who are out of work and, you know, I tried to kind of have our separation as like a, you know, definitely like I'm sorry about all this and I want to see you guys all come back. There is a fear that if this goes long enough, you know, all these people are going to start working in other places and it's going to be much harder to pull somebody from their $17 an hour Amazon job or $15 an hour Kroger job or whatever, Publix job, um, to come back and you know, if they're, if they're, because now they're saying, Hey, you can get benefits if you work here, you know? So there's a little worry of like, are we going to be able to retain the people? Um, and then when it's go time, am I going to have to train a bunch of people to put out the menus? And so it's like starting all over again, (laughs) all over again. It definitely feels that way, but hopefully it'll just be, you know, quick and, and, uh, we'll get back to business as usual, but yeah. There's going to be a lot of parties once this thing's over. I'll tell oh, you that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> ugh, yeah, Uber's going to be busy for not just Uber Eats whenever this is over. It's just going to be a lot of people drinking heavily into the night. So, <laughs> uh, Yeah, hope, well, you'll be busy when it all yeah, ends. Yeah, I think so. We're, we're, we're excited. We're, gonna, we're working on new menu stuff um, for when we reopen and getting new menus designed and printed. And so we're kind of using this as like an opportunity to jumpstart something new. So when oh. we come back, it's very much like, Hey, this is the new stuff we're doing and we're back. Um, that's good to take advantage of the potential positive that something can come out of this. Right. Right. And yeah, it's, it's unfortunate that I don't have like the whole team around me to do this because everyone's very important in all these different things. But I just said, Hey, when we come back together on this, we're going to have a big family meal cook out the new menus, have everybody eat and hang out. And then, you know, we'll go get back to business. So that's the plan. Well, can you, um, do you want to give us, uh, your social media links and names and all that kind of stuff where people can find out what the menu is right now, all that kind of good stuff. So people can go in and buy, buy food from you. Yeah, sure. The easiest way is, I mean, Facebook and Instagram, we're pretty active, um, with the bitter alibi and the daily ration, um, those are pretty easy. We do have websites up that have the menus um, you can choose from. What are your current hours? Do you have? Did you adjust your hours? Yeah, we did. 
which I need to like adjust all that stuff online, I guess, if this is going to be a long thing. But um, at Bitter Alibi, we're doing 11.30 a.m. to 9 p.m. Um, for food, and then we'll do 10 p.m. Friday and Saturday nights. And we're still going to do a shortened brunch on Sunday from 10 to 3. Um, brunch to go. There you go. Brunch to go. Pick it up and go down to Coolidge Park. That's right. That's right. Um, and then daily ration, we're doing like 7.30 to 1.30 um, throughout the week. And I think the weekend, we'll probably push it a little bit later. Just kind of see how it goes. But yeah. Um, yeah, I keep telling everybody this goes against everything I've like told myself you can't do. Like, don't have unusual hours. Don't change these things. Like, let people know when you're open. And I'm like, <laughs> this is like, yeah, this is, it feels like I'm doing everything I tell <laughs> new business owners to not do. And I'm having to do this because just the numbers don't make sense to keep the same hours. Well, that's how you're going to be successful. You have to be flexible when things come at you, you got to be able to handle it. So yeah, that's what, that's what we're trying to do. So, well, good. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. It was really fun talking to you get to know you and everything. Um, do you have any last words or anything? No, just... Um, Do you have anything inspirational to tell everybody? Seriously. Something yeah, positive? I'd love to. I'm in a real positive mood. Now, please support small business. Please support your local restaurants that... Um, not just through bad times, but through, you know, when things are going well, too. Um, I think this has really shown people a lot how how more integrated everybody is to each other and how more interconnected we are that even sometimes we feel isolated or we feel like we're you know the individual is king and during times like this we realize how much a community matters and um so support those people that uh from the ones who get you coffee in the morning to cleaning your hotel room to all the all the things in between just um those are the people that are very important in this city all right couldn't have said it better myself well thanks for coming on awesome thank you Good conversation appreciate it And there we have it, the first episode of People of Chattanooga. I hope you really enjoyed Jason Bowers. I know I did. Uh, Many of you already know him, and I had the honor and pleasure of getting to talk to him for the first time. He has a great story, and he's doing a very good thing for everybody in Chattanooga, especially in this time. So um, if you like the podcast, please subscribe. Do the rating thing on iTunes. Give me five stars, all that kind of stuff that I have to shamelessly promote. Um, I'm not into that, but it's what needs to be done for this to continue. Um, Thank you for listening, and this will be a weekly podcast, so come back next week for the next episode. Have a good week.